podcast number 17 from the greatest city in the world, New York. Normally there's an introduction, uh, sort of an explanation of who these people are, but in this particular case there is no introduction needed. The only thing that need be said is Scott Gans. Um, <laughs> where do you begin? The man is a, has an encyclopedic knowledge of implants, and just always a joy to spend time with. He's uh, conversant, he's funny, he's genuine, and I absolutely adore him. So without further ado, Scott Gans. So I, I'm, I'm doing my usual pilgrimage to New York and 40th and Lex to visit with Scott Gans. Uh, this is where I go to university. So I come to see Broadway and I go to visit Scott and I get a degree in both musical musicology and implantology. It kind of works out really well. I have to tell you a quick story before uh, I ask Scott a question. Uh, I, I've seen Scott lecture years and years and years ago, but somebody told me this story about Scott. He had 18 minutes at, a, at some presentation. They had like this rotate, it was like you know, musical chairs. And 40 people, everybody got 18 minutes, everybody had to get up there and dazzle in 18 minutes, which of course is a very realistic approach. But Scott got up there for 18 minutes, and the comment that was made, it's like listening to somebody talk for six hours. He was able to compartmentalize, make his conversation so dense, yet so clear and so cogent. No stops, no ums, no nothing. It just, it was like watching milk and honey. Just honey just oozed out, and everybody got the take-home message. So that's why I'm here, because I get to have the privilege, aside from him saving my butt when it comes to failing implants, I get to come to New York and I get to listen to uh, the guru. The man who was there in the room when it happened, guided surgery, Alexander Hamilton, a.k.a. Scott Gant. How you doing, boss? Good. Well, that's uh, an idea for a new... Uh Show on Broadway. There we go. Yes, <laughs> Scott Gaines in implantology. <laughs> That'll go over. Maybe we can do a one-man show. Do a one-man show. I'm not, sure they'd be in the life. I'm not sure how many people would be interested in paying. Oh, all well, the dentists would show up, and if you can get that sponsored by all the implant companies, that would be really cool. Yeah, there would be. So the question today was obvious. Uh, this is the man who put us all on a guided path in more ways than one, and uh, we're sitting here in the middle of Forty Lex which is his new palatial home, noise, background, echo, and all that kind of good stuff. So this is definitely raw and unplugged. But I came here, it's like the Beatles going to India to, li to listen to the Maharishi. I have come to listen to the Maharishi give me infinite words of wisdom. Dentistry's implantological guru, her, the Buddha, as it were. So what's new in the world of implantology, Dr. Gaines? Well, uh, you know, I think that we are really at a, a great point in time because we have the ability to share so much knowledge almost instantaneously. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, um, our colleagues from around the world that we can today, you know, reach on our, on our smartphone. I mean, to think about doing that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we, we, you know, we couldn't even imagine. Um, never mind now posting cases and sending images and, and video, uh, you know, of cases really literally instantaneously. Um, we're doing a live feed, which you see a lot of now. You see people doing live feeds right from, uh, you know, a surgical laboratory showing a particular case and um, people are watching, people are interested and people are learning from that. And so we're, we're at a, from an educational standpoint, you know, we are really at uh, a fabulous time 
uh, to be able to collaborate with our peers, with our colleagues, and to be able to explore um, what the future is going to be like. So, you know, we're, we're having a lot of fun with that. You certainly are. I, I mean, like when I said, I was in the room where it happened, I mean, I, I was an agent on this, but I remember Scott Gaines, ICOI. All of these organizations that you were involved in, I would see you pop up and, and you know, all of, you know, you, you have a book on Comey, you do the, you're the editor for, it's for um, Umus Media, digital, yeah. yeah. And all of these things, so you've had like this, aside from just an enormous career, You've had this wealth of influence. You've been involved in so many different organizations, president, whatever, and it's just been this ongoing. You publish like crazy. What is it? Like nineteen chapters in textbooks or something right now? Seventeen. Right. Now. Seven. Okay. Well, I was just giving you a little, little credit center. And of course, you babysit Isaac Tuttle on a yes. regular basis, which is extremely important and not easy to do. Not easy to do. So. You start off like at a time when nobody, the Golden Triangle was the first thing I ever saw in dentistry today. So what, what's the tweak? Somewhere along the line, you have an epiphany moment. Everything starts to make sense for you, and it just literally you know, proliferates from there. What was that moment? That's a good question. I, mean, I, I think in terms of guided surgery, it was really when we went from two dimensions to three dimensions, when we could finally see the patient's anatomy um, and not have to, you know, take a scalpel and open it up and, and, and take a look and see what was there. Uh, and that was, of course, with CT, with computer tomography, when it was first available for, for dental applications, which was in the late 1980s, or early 1980s, I should say, and really became a little bit more popular towards the end of the 80s. But it was very expensive uh, to get scans. We only had film. Uh, that they would print. We, we weren't visualizing this on a, on a computer or a big screen and being able to play with it and, and, and rotate it and things like that. No, this was you know big chest x-ray type film. Hmm. But we got cross-sectional images, we got axial images, we got three-dimensional reconstructed views, but it was a static image. But that's really what set my mind to what the, the potential was. And then, you know, when the development of uh, a graphical user interface, which was Windows, uh, and, you know, Windows 3.1 came out, or 3.0, and then 3.1, and, you know, the introduction of a mouse and the ability to be able to actually, you know, have images on your screen that, that you could play with, uh, that, that was it. I mean, you know, when, and that was when the Simplant first came out, which was really the first interactive treatment planning software. And that was officially released um, as a product for dentists in 1993. So, you know, we're talking, you know, 30 years ago, possibly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, 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 I want to segue very quickly because I saw something the other day. Have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy. You too. Have fun. Drive safe. You too. As I said, this was very raw. <laughs> So, I was at uh, the meeting in Washington, Rui Kohal was doing his presentation on what looked like subperiosteals. Lenny Linkow would have been felling something fierce, right? Yes. You were there in those days too. You were, yes. you were Lenny was a, a friend, a colleague, a teacher? Both. I mean, all, all of the above. I worked with Lenny for about four years here in New York City, not far from here on 18 East 50th Street. Here we are at Park Avenue and 40th Street. and. Um, in fact, when I was I was working with Lenny, uh, it was when we first started using 
three-dimensional imaging and CT back in 1985 to uh, start producing subperiosteal implants without the need for an impression. So we would actually create a, a, uh, a model from the data from a CT scan and they would then do a casting at that time. We only had casting ability uh, to create a subperiosteal without the first impression, which was of course, you know, very a morbid type situation, especially for a full arch mandible or a full arch maxilla. So that was a big moment as well back then. And Lenny was, of course, the pioneer of pioneers. Um, you know, he was the guy that will tell you, you know, how many arrows he had in his back, uh, you know, because everybody at that time, you know, implant dentistry was really voodoo dentistry. And then, uh, of course, when Branamark came around and, and actually put his science to implant dentistry, then the world changed. And kind of people forgot about what, you know, people like Lenny Linkow uh, contributed to implantology. Uh, interesting. So, because of your perspective, like you, you actually have a you have a timeline, a milestone timeline that everything evolved. I won't say changed. There was an evolution in all of this. What was the first time that you actually saw the vision of at least the vestiges of where we are now? At some point in time, when things had changed, like Windows obviously made a difference. But you know, today with uh, literally everything is you know, ExoCAD, you literally go from an internal scanner to a finished product. When did you see start to see a shift of significance? Well, you know, I mean, as as naive as I was back in the early 1990s, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I just posted, um, I think this morning, uh, that I will be at the Academy of Osseo Integration mm -hmm. meeting mm -hmm. in San Diego. And, um, and I was in San Diego at the Academy of Boston Integration exactly 30 years ago in 1992, presenting on some of these topics uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a poster presentation back then. And now 30 years later, going back to San Diego for AO is kind of like, you know, for you, you're going full circle. But it was right around that time that when we started to realize that there was almost an unlimited capability when we bring digital into the equation and that digital represented you know the the use of 3d 3d imaging with, with CT at the time you know Combi didn't come in until almost 10 years later mm -hmm. so we have um, you know a big transition where people you know of course didn't want to use uh, you know, send their patients for a CT scan because obviously nobody had a medical grade CT scan in their in their operatory, and so it, you know it was a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of difficulty trying to get people to understand how important it was, and even today there's a lot of people that, that are, are really believe it or not not using 3D imaging to, to place implants and do other things. So right around that time, um, you know, I, I actually presented at AO in like 94, 95, 96, 97, in different places at the first EAO, AO uh, meeting, I think it was in 96 in Amsterdam. And, you know, and I really truly in my naivety back then, I said, everybody's gonna be doing this in like two or three years. And here we are almost 30 years later, mm -hmm. and we're still talking about the same thing. Although, of course, technology has changed and we can do some of these things on our smartphone that we were thinking about. Uh, but I really believed 
that we would be much further advanced if I would go back in time. Um, it's like, what took us so long? So everything old is new again. So you obviously went through a lot of aggravation. Everybody thought you were a little bit out there. You were straying outside your lane, an outlier, all that kind of good stuff. But you stayed the course, and you did it because A, you got involved in the organizations. You founded them, never mind getting involved with them. And you obviously did, you know, just looking at the pictures. I always kid, well, actually, it's Isaac that I say looks like Zelik, not you. You were always front and center in the pictures. But at some point in time, as people began to embrace this more and more, you continued not just to be the forerunner, but the, the, um, the visionary in all of this. You started coming up with the guide designs, looking at different things. You were working with manufacturers. People gravitated to you because they knew that it's not so much just being a visionary, but you were an early adopter. You understood the implications. And instead of having to convince you of the value, you saw the value at the outset. So we're looking at still in the Clinton era. We'll move into the Obama era at some point in time. But towards the end of the Clinton era, as it were, things really kicked into gear. Early 2000s, um, you know, granted Full Arch was, you know, still being done, external hacks, whatever. But you, you saw it differently. You saw more going on at that time. You began to, um, the grafting, the bone augmentation, all the things that you became very well known for. Again, when did the light bulb go on and what caused it, what, what flipped the switch? Well, I think it was the, when we had the ability to bring technologies together, when we had the ability to go not just to look at a, a three-dimensional image on the screen, but then to also, let's say, bring in uh, another digitized image of a stone cast or, you know, at the, or an impression. Uh, and today we, we do that with intraoral scans. And so once we had that ability and we started to look at uh, being able to design um, occlusion, teeth, full arch on the computer, and then integrate that with the patient's existing three-dimensional anatomy, that's like, you know, like the holy grail. Well, you know, here we are. But, you know, as, as we, were, we were talking about earlier today, the, the basic problem has never changed since the beginning of the technology, since the beginning of implants, since, you know, the beginning of, of, of endo, we still are in the same situation in terms of you have to know how to diagnose and treat implants. And so we have better tools to help us do that, but you still you still need the brain to, to tell you what you're looking you know to, to decipher and interpret what you're looking at, and that's still the biggest hurdle that we have today. You know you can go out and buy the most expensive comb beam CT scan machine there is, but if you don't know how to use all of the tools that will help you diagnose and treatment plan better then you're not getting all of the value out of it, and your patients aren't getting all the value out of it. And that becomes the problem. You taught me the cotton roll trick. Yes. Okay, and I didn't even know who you were, you taught me it. <laughs> I read it in an article somewhere, the cotton roll trick. The Scott Gaines cotton roll trick, I thought that was pretty cool. So I have a question, I don't want, it, I don't want you to lose any of your KOL status with companies. Do you in any way blame the industry for the failure to affect a more rapid transition? Were they at fault in any way about just being concerned about getting stuff out there, but not explaining it, not developing a sense of value-added purpose to all of this change? I, I think that there's some truth to that. I think that um, I, as a consultant to the industry for, for, for over 30 years now, um, and I, I, I have told the story before, 
Uh, I believe that all of the companies, every single one of them that, that deals with clinicians and deals with our, our universe of the digital technologies or any of those technologies, they all make the same mistake. And that is that they believe that the dentist knows what they're doing. So it's not so much that, that they're making the mistake, it's that they're underestimating the ability of the dentist to use the technology correctly and so what they didn't do is they didn't provide, you know, it's like giving you this incredible piece of technology, you know, get the best digital DSLR, you know, camera with this high-powered lens and you have no manual. And you have to spend, you know, figure out all the buttons and, and, and know the menu items and, and try to figure out how to get the best picture. You're not going to be able to get the best picture. You know, I be, I be, I'm, a, I'm an avid photographer and I belong to all of these different uh, groups uh, of uh, for photography, I have to be uh, on the Nikon side and the Leica side, and so uh, you know, I, I, you look at the user groups, and there are people. You know, obviously, this is a hobby for me, but there's other people that that's their profession, and and gosh, you can learn so much from them, and you know, you can't just um, uh, you know be presented with this, you know, let's say a, a thirty thousand dollar camera, and then expect it to take the best pictures right. if you don't know how to use it. Interesting. I'm curious, <clears throat> and the reason I bring it up is, I've seen it in Endo, and Endo's finally waking up. I mean, Endo was digital in the 1960s. Sure. See, they were like we were first. I, I remember talking to uh, Jonathan Dutoy about partial extraction therapy, and they looked at him and went, "Dude, trisection, hemisection. We already been there. What are you talking about?" So what what what's intriguing is you're you're finally you're like the. You're like the, this. They finally recognize that you're a prophet, right? You were never a prophet in your own land, but they, they're finally recognizing that you're a prophet. So, and without harassing the industry, is there still territory? I can't talk English anymore. Is there still territoriality today? Do you feel that there is a that the that the clinician, the dentist, is in a position now? He's they're more he, he she is in a more driving seat position to tell the industry, guys, guys, enough already. Let's stake out a proper path. Is there is this is the corporate part of dentistry still exert far too much uh, far too much power? Well, first of all, I think that you, we have to narrow the scope down. So if you, you because when you talk about dentistry, if you talk about general dentistry, you're talking about crown and bridge and composites and, and endo and porcelain laminate veneers, and then you talk about dental implants. You're not talking the same language. No, no, it's, it's like way, you know, you know, it's definitely two different worlds or, or many different worlds. And so, I mean, like if you go to a, an aesthetic academy meeting and they're talking about, you know, feather edge margins and, and color and all that kind of stuff, and then you go to the Academy of Boston Integration and they're talking about zygomatic implants and, and guided surgery and stuff, it's like, you know, these two worlds don't necessarily talk mm -hmm. to each other for the most part. But to, to, so in a general sense, and I'll, I'll go back to my world, which is basically in the implant world, and that is, um, I, I think that the, you look at, you look at a company today like, like a Stroud, uh, you know, the last time I looked at, they had a market cap of close to $30 billion, $30 billion. I mean, when we started, you know, in implant dentistry, we were lucky if the whole world did a billion dollars worth of sales. And now you have one company. So the, the companies, some of these companies have and wield, you know, a very big, uh, big footprint. 
And so uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, clinicians are in the driver's seat right now. Although, although there certainly is a huge uh, a, a variety of choices uh, from low-cost implants to, you know, to the Rolls-Royce implants. So a clinician does have opportunity to be able to, 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 to do what they want within their realm of their skill set and their budget. So, um, so from that perspective, um, all of the big players, they're, they're also diversifying themselves, their portfolio, by bringing in low-cost implants and high-cost implants. Right, right. So, so you look at you know, you know, some of the companies, like Nobel um, and uh, you know, Strauman, um, with their different families of implants, and Zimmer and, and et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it's, we're, we're, we're in an interesting world, and especially once you get out of the US and you go into the international market and you see what's happening around the globe and which implant companies are actually doing good business and which ones are not, it's, it's, a, it's an eye-opening you know, experience. Well, the reason I ask the question is it's intriguing. You've got Nobel BioCare with DTX concept. Strom is also trying to do its all-in-one digital solution, if I'm not mistaken. Megagen has their R2 gate. So everybody's going in the obvious direction. The workflow, they're all trying to create it, but the dentist is once again being confronted with this cacophony of noise and sort of uh, advertising claims, whatever. And yet now you've got the other part of it where you've got somebody like yourself, you could probably do a planet case and knock out the guide in your sleep, but now you've got all these companies and I should, am I allowed to mention names? Is this, do they call it, do they have contracts out on you if you do no, this? No. Form Labs, Sprint Ray, all these people. Every Monday and Tuesday, Rick Ferguson's got another Amazon package waiting for, like, he's got this, you know, they came up with this printer and that printer and a different this and a different that. like, you know, like, it's a whole, he's got a, a, an Amazon fulfillment warehouse with all this stuff. But now you've got all this stuff, stuff coming out and, you know, everybody's nuancing it. So at the end of the day, how do, you, how do you quell the noise? How do you basically just dampen the noise, put ceiling baffles on, and try and just focus as, be it an established practitioner or somebody graduating who now has to relearn what he didn't learn in four years of dental school. How do you, how do you dampen the noise so that you can move forward with some degree of clarity? Well, I'm glad you had mentioned Rick's name because, I mean, God bless uh, people like Rick Ferguson because, you know, they're not, they're not driven uh, and I, I'm not going to speak for Rick, but I think he's doing an amazing job because he is, he's not driven by profit and by greed, he's driven by a thirst for knowledge and what really does work and what really, you know, doesn't work. And he's, he's tested printers that are, you know, three, five hundred dollars and printers that are, you know, fifteen, twenty plus thousand dollars and, and trying to figure out really what works in, in different situations. And we need that, that honest appraisal so that we, uh, as, as maybe lay people that, that aren't, don't have the luxury of being able to test you know, 30 different printers, uh, to know, gosh, because I get the question all the time, you know, which printer to buy, yeah. uh, which coding to buy, which control scanner to buy. And you know, there is no one answer because the, it's really dependent upon where you are in practicing dentistry. You know, uh, at our last um, Digital Dentistry Society meeting, uh, which was held was one of the, the, the few major international meetings that I was able to attend during our uh, during COVID times, we, we had a wonderful meeting in Lake Como in Italy, which is just, you know, I couldn't even imagine 
having a meeting in such an amazing and beautiful place because I couldn't figure out where they could put all these people. But they had this incredible venue, and we had over 700 clinicians that came to Lake Como from all over the world. And um, I, I, Christian Coachman delivered one of the keynote addresses, and as a, he's a dear friend, and he's just you know he's you know one of the true pioneers in, in the, on the digital front in, in dentistry. And he and he did this whole lecture on you know are you are you a digital dentist? Right. You know, and he gave all these different you know qualifications. You know, like if you have an intraoral scanner, does that make you a digital dentist? Not necessarily. If you have a comb beam CT, does, you know, and you can understand where I'm going with that. But the reality is that um, everybody's at a different place in their career, a different place in their life, uh, and they have a different um, method of being able to to make their patients, give their patients uh, what they need. And so it, it's we're in we're almost in an overload situation because we have. As going back to the, the, the camera analogy, you have a lot of very, very wonderful equipment, but who's, who's educating us on yeah, how to exactly. use it? Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's, really, uh, that's really why, like Isaac and myself, we do our live surgery courses, uh, and, and many others are doing you know, courses so that, so that people are being trained now not in dental school necessarily, but this is what happens after dental school, and these are the places that you have to go to be able to get the education that you didn't get because you needed to pass your board exams. Well, yeah, plus you had your requirements. You brought up yeah. the Digital Dentistry Society for a second. Um, there's an embassy in Canada. I know you're involved in the United States. You're on the board, um, and that, that organization seems to be flourishing like crazy because they created... A standard that's really unimpeachable. The problem, I, I have a question. And again, I don't know, is there a sniper outside the room here? I don't know, we have to be very careful. Especially, I don't know if this is being recorded, so maybe we can just turn it off. Why is it that Europe is so digitally inculcated, they're infused, it's the fabric of the profession, and we have to fight like crazy here in North America to get somebody to join the Digital Dentistry Society? I, well, the, there's a lot of different answers to that, but you know, when I when we go back to some of the original questions and you look at the historical basis for where we are, um, when I for years and years and years, you know, part of my introduction in my in my lectures was to go through like who invented what technology, right? Because we here in the U.S., you know, not so much in Canada, exceptionalism. Yeah, we're going down the exceptionalism. Yeah, yeah. We we tend to think that we invented everything and we're the best in everything. And so, like, I'll ask the question, you know, to, to a group, um, you know, when we talk about digital dentistry, well, let's, you know, who, who invented the comb beam CT? I mean, was that in the U.S.? Of course it's not. Who invented intraoral scanners? Not from the U.S. And so on and so forth. So, so all of that came from outside the U.S., meaning that the, the, the technology, in, in many cases, was being used before lots of us here in the U.S. knew about it, especially you know people that don't come to meetings and that you know are not necessarily plugged in. And so I think that the relationship between the dental technicians and and the clinicians was a much different relationship in many of the European countries than it is here in the U.S. And that's one of the major reasons as well. Yeah, it's interesting because thanks to you, I met Peter Pizzi. 
Well, he's become my, my own personal hero because he plays. He's got a drum set like Neil Peart. Um, but but it's interesting having met uh, some of these. Uh, the, the, <laughs> they're technicians, they're laboratory specialists, and the argument always is that you're only as good as your laboratory specialist, right? Without them, you, you could be a chump, no matter how well your implants are aligned. So in the context of all of that, so we have now this obvious need to uh, drive, like we're a big market, uh, Brazil's a big market, we have to drive that engine. We, as a profession, that engine needs to be driven. Um, so you, being one of the forerunners, we, we are, you're now in this edifice, this fantastic place, you're doing full arch treatment, okay, that's become your focus. Developing new guides to do that, which we'll talk, in a, talk about in a second. But in the context of doing this type of procedure, um, there's a number of facets that you are doing. You've worked this out with Isaac, and there's an area that you were showing me today. You did this amazing case today with this guide that you developed. Um, not stackable, but a way of reducing the, uh, the, the alveolus. But there was a part of this that you brought up that in Europe there's a philosophy, but you're doing something else here, and that was dentin grafting. Now, having spoken to Miziana, having spoken to me, somehow dentin grafting just seems to have like materialized out of the, the ether, and yet here we are after all this time with the ultimate bone grafting material. So, is this something that you think needs to be embraced wholeheartedly? Is this you know like it's like PRF? How long did it take PRF to become mainstream? Is that nautograph about to become mainstream in your opinion? Well, I'm glad you mentioned PRF because that would have been my segue. Because you know, one of the the ways that we describe the use of PRF to our patients is that you know, we're taking your cells, we're going to then give them back to you in a different form. And what's better than you know than giving the patient back their own cells when you know we could go out and buy something from the shelf. Uh, we can get bone in a bottle, we can get membranes, we can get all sorts of other things, um, and obviously there's a cost factor, but it's also you're going to a tissue bank from someone else to implant in your, in your patient. And so, um, you know, when the concept of dentin grinding came to me early on, you know, I had my, you know, my doubts as much as anybody else, because first of all, it, it took a much longer process to be able to take a tooth that you extracted from a patient and go through the process of cleaning it and, and, and debriding it and then sterilizing it so it can be then reimplanted into the patient. And now that time has been shortened through and, and refined through the Smart Dent Grinder, which is a, an absolutely amazing device and something that we use all the time. The problem is that in order to use the Smart Dent Grinder, you have to have a tooth. Right. And so, so that's, that's a big limiting factor. If you're not extracting a tooth, you have no reason to use it. <coughs> so when you have, um, you know, but when you're doing third molar extractions, as an example, and you want to fill those sockets with grafting material, I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. Uh, the you know, it's basically a virgin tooth, especially if it's if it's you know not not erupted, uh, and the amount of volume and the quality of the of the bone particulate that you get is incredible. So one of the things that, you know, I, I kind of managed to think about over the last few years is how, how can I, uh, and, and in collaboration with Isaac, how could we start to help promote this concept in a broader sense? And as full arch implant restorations and reconstruction became, has become like a driving force, you have to 
start to think about, well, we're not just working on edentulous patients, we're working on patients that we have to take teeth out. And if you're taking those teeth out, and of course, then the alveolus may have concavities and may have holes from the extraction sockets where you're not putting implants, you have defects that need to be filled, why not give the patient their autogenous material back? And it's absolutely incredible how much volume that you get. And one of the things that I keep hitting Amit over the head, Amit Binderman, is the fact that he's missing a tremendous marketing opportunity because he does not, he has these containers that we can fill up with all of this particular grafting from, from the teeth that we extract, but we don't know how much it actually is. So I want him to, to, you know, I've been begging him, come out with your with your little containers that tell us if it's four cc's, if it's six cc's, right, if it's right, twelve cc's, because right. then you can say, okay, if I have ten cc's of bone here, and I had to go out and get ten cc's from a, a tissue bank bone, you know, tissue bank bone, how much did I just say? Like fifteen hundred. I mean, or I mean, it's serious money when you think about it. But bet, you know, forget about the money. From a practice building standpoint, when you're talking to a patient about PRF, you're talking to them about using their own teeth. I mean, their eyes light up, and you know it separates you from what other people are doing. Besides the fact that it is a better product because it's their own cells, the it, it get the turnover is faster, the bone quality is amazing, and so we wrote an article, and we have more coming out on on using uh, dentin grinding for full arch cases when we're taking teeth out. I mean, we did a beautiful case today, and we, we do, you know, almost uh, once or twice a week, we're doing these cases where the volume is incredible. Now, of course, you can't do it with all teeth because some of the teeth have, you know, root canals and, and posts and and uh, endodon is screwing things up. It's, it's always, we're discussing. We, can, we can blame endodon for everything, but there's also big amalgams and crowns and, and teeth that are just not, not uh, acceptable for doing that. And there is a time factor because you, you have to clean the teeth, you have to take all the debris out of it and everything else. And so you have to have a staff that, that an auxiliary staff that, that helps you to be able to do that. And, but, but it's so rewarding in the end to have um, the ability to do that. And, and seriously, the volume that we're getting is, is, uh, is remarkable. So question, all on four, my first exposure to implants was ankylos with locators, that was Jacques Bernier in Quebec City. The McGill study came out in 92, I think it was, that he had a minimum of two teeth, given that everybody in French Canada, Quebec had no teeth, that was the, that was the gift that the father used to give to the to the groom, right, would take right. all the teeth right. out and give them yes. dentures, so they yeah. didn't have dentures, it's a true story. I thought it was at 18. No, at 18. I, I, yeah, it was automatic, it was, a, it was a rite of passage when you turned 18, you could start to drink and you had your teeth all taken out. Bottom line was all on four, all on X, okay? Everybody's got their little buzz phrase, everybody's got their little shtick, some people put 16 implants into an arch to replace, whatever. Talk to me about this. What's the, again, diagnosis and treatment planning. Okay, it, forget the buzzwords, forget the, the I belong to this group, that group. All on X, let's, let's call it what it is. What's the rationale? Well, obviously people have been very, very successful doing uh, all on four. And uh, I just have never been, you know, I personally have never been a big fan of only four implants because look, I mean, we're not infallible. Implants can fail. And, you know, as Carl Misch used to say, you know, all on four or not on three. And so you, you have, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, kind of like belt and suspenders. 
So my general rule is, is I try to do five implants in the mandible on average, and I try to do six implants in the maxilla. And that is, a, I think, a good rule for me, and it's, it's done well for my patients uh, also. Now, of course, we are limited by the bone quality and the patient's anatomy, but all of that we know in advance because we have wonderful comb beam CT that tells us that, and whether or not we need to, you know, augment with, with our bone graft materials or do ridge splitting or do sinus augmentations, etc. You know, the, the all on four concept, you know, from Malo and stuff was to always to avoid grafting, always to avoid sinus uh, elevations, procedures, etc. And, um, but where there's controversy is also how much bone reduction you're going to do with some mm -hmm. of our, our new concepts of being able to deliver teeth, you know, the same day or, or, or several days later. So, so there's, there's, there's several sides to the coin, and there are definitely some areas of controversy. But I'm a belt and suspenders guy. I'd rather, I'd rather you know, try to make sure that my patients are going to walk out with teeth that are fixed if that's what they want. We also do overdenture cases for patients that you do not have the financial ability to afford a, a monolithic zirconia restoration in the end. But we always try when we do our overdenture cases, if it's physically available in terms of the, the topography of the, of the bone, to plan in advance so we can put in, let's say, four um, implants with the, with the caveat that maybe we'll add one or two in the future if the patient decides they want to fix restoration later. Hmm. You know, if they hit the lottery and they have the money to do that. This is a ride that we're sitting here in this echo chamber, they got like, um, the ambulances are flying by. <laughs> so, having done one like this, it's actually a bit of a hoot. So now we're gonna come to the, you're showing me this new thing that you just came up with, this new guide that you're going to be presenting in Seged, right? You're going yes. to Seged, Hungary? Yes, so, okay. we, we were supposed to do this two years ago, and, and then last year, and you know, it kept getting postponed, and let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, we're going to all be able to be in Seged. For but that's a biggie. That's a biggie, too. That's like Como. Como had like, what, close to 800 people? Seged gets 800 yeah. people? That's a fairly no, nice. Actually, actually they've, got, they've, got, they've gotten more. They've gotten really? More yeah, I think I was there once, and there was I think about twelve hundred people there. So it's it's um, you know you got to give them credit. Again, they their educational opportunities there are are incredible, and they have some some of the most incredibly talented people uh, in the world. I mean, you look at Isfahan Urban, who's, yep. you know one of one of the true talents in, in talking about bone grafting and, and really changing quality of life for lots of patients. There's, there's a brilliant, brilliant guy. We also have the queen here, Kathleen Lodge is there. Oh, she, she's fabulous. She's uh, something else Absolutely. in every sense of the word. Yep. So she's going to assemble something. Actually, the only thing she's not doing is she's not going to make goulash because she has a problem with goulash. She prefers fish soup and goose liver butts, I guess. So the bottom line there is, this is what you're going to talk about. I'm curious. You're showing me this. This is something that you've done that's different. I'm intrigued. You make your own. You have your own guides made up by your design. There's no sleeves. Is no. that why? I haven't used sleeves probably in maybe six or seven years, um, and it's it's um, partly because the initial guided systems always were necessitated the use of sleeves. So when you think about it, especially the early guides that we, we created back you know, in the prehistoric times, um, we had, when we started, we had sequential 
sequential guides. I mean, we would, we would have one guide for every diameter drill, sequential drill that we would use. And uh, we would have to swap out all these guides. Of course, that uh, changed over the years when we were able to um, have drill kits that were guided drill kits. And then we, then it was introduced that we would have these keys or spoons that would then go into these cylinders. And, you know, it became very cumbersome and also very expensive because you had everybody coming out with their own, with their own concept of what, what a guided surgical kit should be. Um, but think about it. If you have a metal sleeve and you introduce a drill into that metal sleeve, when you are when you are drilling, there's no way that that drill does not touch the the, the sides mm -hmm. of the metal. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, it just has to because the sleeves are usually about two tenths of a millimeter wider than the um, than the drill to allow it to spin. If it's any smaller than that, the drill wouldn't spin. And so when the um, you know, I wish I had come up with the design, but I didn't. But for the for the guided drills where the drill, the cutting surface was protected, meaning that the shank of the, of the drill was wide, and that would engage the sides of the metal sleeves, and, and the cutting surface of the drill was inside of that, so it, was ne it never touched the walls of the sleeve. Uh, that was a great introduction, but it wasn't until 3D printing that we had the luxury of being able to say, wait a minute, maybe we don't need sleeves. Maybe we could just, using these wider shank guided drills, we could go direct with resin uh, that we 3D print. And you know, there was no turning back once I discovered that and you know, with the proper drill kits that are very similar uh, from many different companies. Uh, Megagen certainly has that with their R2 gate kit. MIS has uh, that type of a drill, Hyacin and many others that have a guided kit like that uh, where the drill shanks are wide and they would fit through either a sleeve or a sleeveless 3D printed resin guide. So I had, I was at, as I mentioned, I was at the Washington meeting, I had a chance to meet up with uh, Morty Ingber, is the fellow that he works with, uh, Marie Salami, with this monstrous lab down there. 75,000 square feet. You know, Paul Kim and his Yeah, family. yeah, that group. And so what was fascinating was that he took me into, it's all broken up, you know, the ceramic divisions. Yes. And yeah. So he takes me to the back. Yeah, they, don't want, they don't want the dust to get through. Oh, something the, along those lines. I don't know what it was. It was very <laughs> elegant. But at the end, it was the mon like the zirconium blocks, the monolithic zirconium yeah. blocks. Like that was like, you know, that's like yeah. Star Wars, right? Yeah. So future of implant dentistry from your perspective, recognizing that well, I mean, let's get serious. I mean, all North America, white teeth and whatever. But I, I've seen people like Sabine Meyer and the stuff that she does. I mean, Nasser Shadman's in another thing. So we're, we're doing monolithic zirconium blocks, you know, putting them in these teeth. The acrylics are wonderful. It's all festooned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are we ever going to be able to, as a, as a profession, really get back to nature? It's like listening to music, right? I'm a music fanatic. I would rather listen to an old 33 with all the scratchiness and all the mistakes in a digital record where it's been auto-tuned and you know it's a fake. That's why all these girl singers can sound so good because it's all the same song, they just play it at different speeds. Is there going to be a time when all this digital stuff retains a certain analog elegance? Well, first of all, there's no question that the 
vast, vast majority of people in digital dentistry are still doing a combination of analog and digital. But when it comes to the artistry, when it comes to mimicking nature truly, uh, again, I'm going to point back to the Europeans and, and to what their concept uh, of what um, cosmetics are. And to many, to many people, the, it's the cultural, um, you know, background of their, of their population. I mean, if they started with crooked teeth, that's what they want because that is replacing nature. That was right. what nature gave them. When they're not talking about the Hollywood smile and this beautiful, you know, uh, bleach shade, you know, that's the, the shade of that the tissue over there that's dead white. Um, but if you look at, does it exist? Absolutely. Look at Enrico Steiger, look at, look at Zircon Zahn, what they've done uh, with their Kretau. And by the way, that's something that I'm involved with as well. I've been working with them for, for many, many years. And uh, the, one of the, the biggest lab on, on the uh, North American continent um, is the Teeth Tomorrow Lab, and they, they are the experts in, in Pratao Zirconia. But if you look at the origins of that, if you go to the Zirkanzan website, and you look at their libraries from their technicians, it's mind-blowing. I mean, these are Picassos of teeth, mm -hmm. I mean, and they are absolutely amazing. You know, like, like Peter Pitsimake is such a, is a genius in what he does. These guys are absolute artistic geniuses at being able to customize these types of full arch monolithic zirconia, or not even full arch, they could be three unit bridge or, or you know, five unit bridge. And, uh, and, and it's part of Enrico Steiger's vision. So does that exist? Absolutely exists yeah. already today. It's interesting. I actually, I'm, I've become increasingly obsessed with the laboratory specialists because really after talking to Peter, seeing some of the work of some of the, Robert Arbi and some of the other people I spoke to, it just, it just seems to me that these are the people to talk to. Right now, everybody's going, be a dent, this implant, that implant. But again, it's like, what do you, what's your final product look like? Which is how Sabine Meyer came on the radar. Aside from the fact that she takes black and white photography and she's, you know, it just the stuff is awesome. But I was watching what she, it was the closest, it was the female counterpart to Peter. That's what it thought. Right. That's that what was, you know, when you look at the pictures, it was sure. the female counterpart, same aesthetic. So, Friday night, all the noise in the world, New York, I don't know how anybody, the city that never sleeps is a good reason. There's an endless parade of noise. It's like just this city is always screaming, aside from the energy level just being crazy. It's, it's been, this is my favorite part of going to New York. I always get to see you. Isaac wants nothing to do with me. I always say I'll come to Brooklyn because I'm busy. <laughs> and I'm, okay, forget that noise. Okay, he's still upset because I won't call it the universal uh, whatever shape or it's, yes. I don't, it has to be called the Braminator or nothing. <laughs> I'll not talk to him about it. So I'm going to let you go home to Fort Lee, which is like, unless, is Christy still governor? Is he closing down the bridge? Is no, it? no, no, no. He's gone. He's, he's gone. He's running for president. Yeah. He could be. You never know. You, you never know. Let's not go down the road with politics, because <laughs> yeah. they both know where we stand. We are <laughs> beyond Pinko. As <laughs> so listen, I, thank you for doing this. This is awesome. We'll obviously have to play with the sound or not. Who cares? It's unplugged. And at the end of the day, this is always a pleasure, Dr. Gans. So it's our one in a million. And it's always a pleasure to have you come and visit at 2 Park 40 in New York or anywhere that we, you and I get to be able to spend some time together. It's, it's always a, a, a wonderful pleasure. But what we need to do is we need to actually, when you, next time, when we have the time, to uh, actually go out and have dinner at one of the most, uh, in some of the most incredible restaurants that we have here. We do, and I, you mentioned 40 Perth. Oh, and happy birthday. Oh, and you, belated oh, birthday. Oh, no, no, no. There you go, old. we gotta put that old. in there. Too old. 
Forty Park, as I said, I think once in one of those posts, yeah, Forty Park is the new Thirty Rock. Yeah, and you rock, man. This is all really good. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Okay. And that was our interview, my man. Isn't he amazing? Uh, yeah, really, he's one of a kind. So, uh, where are we? He's going to be in San Diego at the AO, I think it's the 23rd of February. Uh, I'm sure online somewhere else, uh, probably lecturing uh, somewhere, anywhere. And I know he's in Seged, as he indicated, on May 7th to 9th, I think it is. Um, so, uh, I'm going to have to sort of hogtie a few people, grab them by the ankles. Uh, to com get commitment to the next podcast. Everybody's busy. But um, let's sign off and say stay well, stay healthy, stay safe. And again, increasingly, hug somebody. We're desperate. We still need it. Still winter, still Omicron. And uh, so enjoy the rest of your weekend.